Welcome to Bookshed Bethel. My name is Anne-Marie Koistra. I'm in the History Department. I'm joined by... Harry Peffley in the Philosophy Department. This week, we are talking with Dean Barrett Fisher, uh, who is a former English professor at Bethel, and he'll be talking to us a little bit about Shakespeare, some film adaptations, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So enjoy. Dr. Barrett Fisher, we are so excited to have you on today's podcast, and we are eager to learn your thoughts about both Henry V and maybe Henry IV. I know you have strong feelings about Henry IV. Um, and then maybe what your alternative would be if we were to move away from one of those plays. So maybe let's start with um, Henry IV, Henry V. Talk about which one of those plays you like better and why. Okay. Well, that's actually not a difficult question. Um, I definitely like Henry IV better. Uh, and of course, you know, if we talk about what is, what is better, um, I'm answering that question without any particular context, except to say to me, if you wanted to go see a Shakespearean performance, or if you wanted to read a Shakespeare play, which one would it be? Henry the fourth part one or Henry the fifth. Uh-huh. Um, and without cutting that any finer in terms of who's Henry the fifth and who is Henry the fourth, the answer would have to be Henry the fourth, just for, I think for obvious reasons. Um, Hal is a lot more fun than Henry. And, you know, there's Falstaff, and uh, he's probably one of the greatest comedic creations in English literature. Uh, and so I just love to spend time in the company of, of Falstaff. Um, so I guess that, that's really e- easy for me. It's, it's a, to me, it's a play that has, um, it, does a, it does a nicer job of mixing different concerns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got the whole rebellion, you've got the whole political issue going on. And then you've got the the kind of the, the underbelly parallel with Hal and all the folks at the tavern. And then you've got father-son conflicts. So you've got familial tensions. It just, it seems a lot more interesting to me in the way that, and Shakespeare often does a great job of this, of taking domestic issues and seeing how they play out in political terms and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's why I like Henry IV, uh, part one, better than Henry V. Excellent. Now, Those are compelling reasons. They, they are compelling reasons. Now, I'm you are a uh, you you are a former British literature or not British literature professor at Bethel University now, Dean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you obviously majored in literature in college, right? Right. Did you have to perform any Shakespeare yourself as part of that degree process, or in gra- I'm just curious. That's a really good question. And um, and, and no, you know, interestingly enough, when I was taught Shakespeare as an undergraduate, it was just classic stand and deliver on the part of the the, the instructor. He he talked a lot about performance. He actually had an appreciation for for performance. But this was in the antediluvian days where we didn't even have video. So, you know, I, so we sat in a lecture room in 1978 and heard H.R. Corson talk about what it was like to see the play here, what it was like to see the play there. So I was not taught Shakespeare as an undergraduate really through the lens of performance. Um, I got a, a little bit of it when I TA'd in, uh, in grad school. Uh, I TA'd for a sh- called Shakespeare in Politics course. And that was the time at which the BBC uh, complete Shakespeare videos were coming out. So we actually, that's when I started thinking about Shakespeare and performance. And then by the time I came to teach Shakespeare, 
the reason I subtitled the course The Art of the Dramatist was I wanted to think about Shakespeare not just as he was he wasn't writing poetry when he wrote the plays, although they are in verse, but he was writing performance scripts for performance. So I got increasingly interested in uh, interpreting Shakespeare through performance. In fact, I developed a course uh, in Shakespeare on film. That's one of the ways I got into film studies as well. But to answer your question, Amory, to go back to that question, I did take a summer course at the Guthrie about 15 years ago uh, performing Shakespeare um, and discovered, uh, not to my surprise, that I had not missed my calling in the dramatic arts. Uh, that despite my interest in performance, uh, it was better left to people who could do it. Um, but I actually, we had to rehearse and, and, uh, and perform a scene for the other students in the class. And so I, I rehearsed with another student and did um, one of the, uh, a scene out of Richard III, uh, one of his wooing of Anne scenes. Um, and uh, so the, the only thing I carried away permanently from that experience, well, two things. One is I'm a terrible actor. And, and two, um, because Richard has to have this limp, you know, I was trying to create a limp. And the instructor, Doug Schultz Carlson, said, just, stand, just step on the side of your foot. Uh-huh. And was the most obvious, you know, answer. So that's what I, so I learned. That's what I know about the craft of acting. If you want to limp, step on the side of your foot. That's valuable advice. It is. If, <laughs> if you're ever involved in any other kind of subterfuge, just kind of keep that in mind. Right, right. Um, when you had that experience, did you start to think about Shakespeare differently as sort oh. of performative? Oh yeah, abs, abs, absolutely. I mean, it really, it really was valuable from from an from an instructor's point of view to think about um, how. Well, you know, one, one of the things it, it got me to think about was I got thinking about kind of the through line on individual characters, like you know. So I went back. I remember next time I taught Hamlet, and I thought, okay, let's look at all the speeches that Horatio gives, just kind of through the whole arc of the play, and you and you figure out how Shakespeare is really creating these. Uh, I mean, he really is creating consistent characters throughout mm -hmm. the play. So, so I guess, you know, I started to think, I started to think a lot more about, again, the way that a particular performance could embody the character as well as the notion of how, I mean, you, you get a sense of the inexhaustibility of the plays. This is true of a lot of drama, but I think it's especially true for, for Shakespeare. There's so many different ways to, uh, to play the character, so many different ways to set the plays. It's just, mm -hmm. it's really, um, I don't know, it's fascinating. Well, so it sounds like you are a big fan of the fact that Humanities 2 does the audacious thing and has students actually perform the play that they're reading. I think that's a great idea. I think that one, I think, I think that one of the things that inoculates people against Shakespeare is trying to wade through this difficult language on the page and then being told you have to scan it and you have to look for symbols and images and all those things that kill poetry. Um, because it becomes a chore rather than a pleasure. So I think the idea that you, you stand up, which is important, right? You, you got to stand up. So acting is about moving your body. And one of the things that I really discovered early on about how Shakespeare's plays work, which is something I think students learn when they start to perform, is the way in which Shakespeare embodies stage directions in the lines. He has you say certain things that you realize he's implying movement on your part, you know, a gesture or a step here or a step there. So I think that once students start to do that, rather than having, uh, I mean, this still, the dialogue is still a challenge, right? It's still, uh, it's early modern English. People call it old English, but it's early modern English. 
Um, and so that means that a lot of the words uh, that we think we know what they mean, they mean something different for Shakespeare. So that, those are kind of the places in which you get led astray. But when you're actually doing the performance, you're trying to figure out why, you know, the classic question an actor asks is, why am I saying this now to this person? Um, I don't know. To me, that at least potentially is going to make the play more interesting and accessible uh, to the students. So since you did Shakespeare and sort of the performative and film aspects and you love Henry IV, part one, is there a film version of that that you would highly recommend? You know, that's a good question. I can't think of a straight film version of just Henry IV, part one. However, what I can recommend is probably the well, it's either the greatest or the second greatest of Shakespearean adaptations on film, which is um, Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight, uh, which is now available on a, on a great DVD version. And uh, what Welles does in that film, he actually puts together five different Shakespeare plays, but it's mostly the two, the, the, the Henry IV, part one and part two. Uh, in fact, the, you'll see the film um, listed under two different titles. Some people will call it Falstaff, uh, Wells more frequently referred to it as Chimes at Midnight, but Falstaff is the center of that film. Uh, and so you get pretty much all of Falstaff scenes in, uh, in, in Henry IV, one and two. So to me, that remains the, the greatest uh, screen version of, uh, of that play. Does Wells play Falstaff? Oh, yes. yes. Oh, that would be I, oh, The Battle of Shrewsbury in that film is one of the greatest battle scenes ever shot. It is absolutely amazing. And one of the things I love about it is Wells, who didn't need to put on any, any makeup to be Falstaff at that point in his life. He's wearing this armor and, he, and you see him, he, you know, you have the main battle going on and you see him running around trying to avoid being involved at all. And he's encased in this armor and he looks like a little tank, the way he can, kind of keeps running around. Anyway, that is, that, that is probably one of the single best battle scenes uh, ever ever put the film as far as I'm concerned. So I just love that film. It's great. Now, Barry, as a fan of your other podcast, well, you, I, this isn't your podcast, but of the podcast that you do with Sam Mulberry, um, I'm of course eager to know, have you done a podcast on Chimes at Midnight yet? No, I haven't. Uh, one of the things that we limit ourselves uh, in that podcast, we limit ourselves to films that people can access on Netflix or Amazon. Sure. So that, that has stymied some of my choices. Um, although I've been surprised to find that a great number of the Criterion editions are on Amazon. And to be frank, I haven't checked on Chimes at Midnight. I've been trying to figure out what I want to do as my first Shakespeare film on that podcast. I've actually been leaning towards Michael Amoreda's Hamlet, but that's, a, that's a, another story. So many. I, I love getting movie suggestions. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, Barrett, my daughter is a huge fan of the podcast. And so... Um, you know, she probably will request a private conversation about these films at some point. So just just so you know. that. Well, she should talk to Judy Ritchie or maybe she shouldn't, because Judy Ritchie learned years ago that any film that Barrett Fisher recommends is not to be watched. Uh, <laughs> you can ask Dan about that. But, OK. Um, <laughs> uh, another conversation, perhaps. Oh, have you ever seen any of the Hollow Crown um, versions of Shakespeare? No, I haven't. Okay. I wonder, I've seen, so I've seen when we were preparing for Henry V, we have our students watch the, that version, which has Tom Hiddleston as Henry. Um, and then I just watched Henry IV part one. So I still have never seen or read Henry IV part two. 
Um, but Jeremy Irons as Henry the Fourth, and uh, Tom Hiddleston as his son. It was a great dynamic. So it'd be interesting to hear your your perspective on those. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. Those are those are great actors. I'd love to see those. Mm-hmm. Well, so Barrett, I am dying to know, and I'm sure Carrie is as well. If we did not read Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth, what would we read um, if you were on the team? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here. Oh, um, good. Because I, I think this is a controversial choice. At least it is in my mind. Uh, but I have, of course, uh, as, as Falstaff says, uh, give me, as Hal says to Falstaff, give me your reasons, Jack. Um, I, have, I have my reasons. By, by the way, do you know that about that line, give me my reasons, Jack, um, that probably in the dialect it would have been pronounced raisins. Give me, give me my, give me my raisins. So that's why Falstaff goes on to say, if reasons were as plentiful as blackberries, uh, because he's thinking of the pun on raisins. Um, at least that's what I've been told. Um, not by Shakespeare, but by some other source. So my, so my option would be The Merchant of Venice. And first of all, I, okay, so why is that controversial? Well, for those listening who don't know a lot about Shakespeare or about that particular play, um, it is a, it's a play in which anti-Semitism is a key theme. And there has been a lot of debate, even among Shakespeareans, mm-hmm. about whether it's a play that should continue to be performed mm-hmm. because of the anti-Semitism that's expressed in it. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I would teach Merchant, I actually would show, um, either show part of it in class or have students watch outside of class a really amazing video that was made in the uh, performing Shakespeare series back in the early mid eighties by um, from the Royal Shakespeare company. And John Barton, who was the director at the time does a workshop with Patrick Stewart. And of course, back in the day, I could show this and students knew who Patrick Stewart was from Star Trek and not from other things. And David Suchet, who most students didn't know because they didn't watch Masterpiece Theater and know about Hercule Poirot. But anyway, so both uh, Suchet and Stewart had played Shylock for John Barton. Okay. Uh, and the added interest is Suchet is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and they had done very, very different versions of the character. So they ran through a number of different scenes and talked about why they interpreted the character the way, the way they did. Um, but when I went the first time to England uh, in 1993, when I took students there, we went to a, perform- a production of Merchant of Venice uh, at Stratford-upon-Avon. And uh, we then had a class afterwards with one of the actors in the play. In fact, the actor who played Portia, uh, the main female character in the play. And the question of anti-Semitism came up. And the production did a way of, of, of handling that. It, it did a very... Um, it did a Shylock who was very cultured, uh, who didn't fit any kind of the stereos, the, the Jewish stereotypes in the play to kind of work against type. The actress who played Portia in that production said she had come to the conclusion after playing it that it was a bad play. Mm. It was an anti-Semitic play and she wouldn't, she wouldn't perform it again. So mm. I have to say that at the outset. Mm. Um, and I do think that we are at a time in um, at both educational and cultural circles where engaging difficult topics, whether it's, whether it's racism or sexism or anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. that there's a very, you know, there's a debate, right, among mm-hmm. people as to what you should do. Do you, do you engage it and teach the issues in the, in the, in the work? 
Or do you say the way this issue is engaged in this work, it makes it in a sense kind of beyond redemption. You really, it's going to be a trigger for some people. It's so, so I'm going to go on record as saying that I think that despite the anti-Semitism to express in Merchant, I think it's a reason to teach the play because mm -hmm. I think there are arguments within the play about how Shylock is, is, is treated. Mm -hmm. So there's anti-Semitism. There's even a, a touch of racism uh, in, the, in the play that's, that's worth talking about. So to me, the fact that these are issues that we struggle with in the 21st century, but they are coming to us from the early, from the Renaissance. Um, to me, that's something that students ought to know about. And I think it's something that the play, the play does, does wrestle with um, quite a bit. So there's that. Uh, the title of the play, The Merchant of Venice, tells you that this is a play that is concerned with the rise of capitalism. Mm -hmm. In fact, capitalism and the use of money becomes a really key theme in the play. Mm -hmm. So for those who maybe don't know the plot, I'm not going to assume, you know, in, in the play, the Shylock, who is not the titular merchant, uh, the titular merchant is Antonio, but Shylock has a bond that is a, um, uh, and he's made an agreement with Antonio. The Antonio has to pay him a certain amount or give him a pound of flesh. Mm -hmm. And Antonio isn't able to make good on that. Uh, and when finally he defaults on the loan. So when finally Shylock is given the opportunity to accept actually more money than uh, is owed him, he says, no, I want my pound of flesh. Mm -hmm. um, I don't care about the money, I want my pound of flesh. So you get into a really interesting conversation about, about values, about you know, can money substitute for, in this case, what some people see as Shylock's revenge, which Shylock simply sees as, as justice. Uh, and then this leads into a religious debate about legalism versus, um, versus grace or mercy, famous speech that Portia gives about the quality of mercy, uh, even though she herself is a little, um, a little hypocritical in some respects. So you got that going on, okay? So you, so you got, you got anti-Semitism, a little bit of racism, you've got capitalism, but then you've also got the, the romantic plot Mm -hmm. And the romantic plot is actually tied to classical literature because Bassanio, who is setting out to woo, to win over Portia, because to be frank, she's got a lot of money. That's his, <laughs> that's his, that's his initial impulse. So capitalism gets mixed, in, gets mixed in with romance and love. But at the same time, he, he, he compares their quest, his quest to win Portia's hand to uh, Jason and the Argonauts off to find the Golden Fleece. So you can put you can put a, you can put a little bit of uh, a little bit of classical illusion in there, and then okay, you've also got feminism going on, because Portia is this very she's one of the best female characters Shakespeare ever wrote, um, but she can't marry whoever she wants to, uh -huh. because her father has left this and and here's another kind of these kind of mythological or, or folklore elements. There's three caskets. Uh, boxes and the suitor has to pick the right one in order to win her hand. And she talks about the fact that she's ruled by the iron will of a dead father. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she, uh, but, and yet she proves herself to be highly, highly capable. And when she brings the very suitors in to check the casket, she plays music that kind of gives clues to make sure that the one she doesn't want to pick the right casket picks the wrong casket. So it's, it's, it's really interesting as you see, so you can talk about patriarchy, uh, and how women struggle to, to assert their own will uh, within these societal structures. And that's paralleled by Shylock's relationship with his daughter, Jessica, who also uh, does not want to bow to the will of her father. And she, in fact, ends up converting to Christianity 
uh, and eloping. Uh, but, but of course, since it's Merchant of Venice, she takes a very valuable ring with him, with her, uh, uh, as well as, uh, well, and the ring has sentimental values, but it also has material value uh, as well. Um, I don't know. So those are a few of the things that are kind of going on in the play. Um, and it's, it's got a fair number of roles. It's got, um, it's got more roles for women uh, than uh, Henry IV Part I or, or, or Henry V. So it's got that yeah. going for it. Of course, it doesn't really much matter, as we know, because in Shakespeare's time, uh, men played, or boys often played the role of, of women. So that means you have one of these wonderful Shakespearean scenes where Portia going into court as a lawyer is playing a young man. So you have a guy playing a woman, playing a man. Um, I kind of like that. So it's one of those kind of self-referential -refer moments in the, in the plays that Shakespeare does a lot, where he brings to your attention the artifice uh, rather than just try to hide it. And having a woman, certainly having done the Henriad for so long, having actual female characters other than, I mean, in the Henriette, they're just props. Catherine is just kind of a prop to be passed around. Um, yeah. Not very interesting at all. No, Portia is really interesting. She's just one of, she's one of the great Shakespeare characters. And she's also a character about which people have different opinions. Mm -hmm. um, some people think she's kind of cold and calculating. And, uh, but you know, that's those, are, and they use nastier words than that. Um, but, but, <laughs> but those are the, those are the circumstances into which, into which she finds herself. And so I think you get to talk a, a lot about, you know, the, the, the period and what kinds of freedom women had or what kinds of freedom that they, they didn't have. Well, Carrie, I'm convinced. How about you? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking, Oh, that, that seemed to fit a lot of what, what we're trying to do with the, the interim play. Um, the the rise of nation states, of new economies, of feminism, um, of, of racism, anti-Semitism. These are all fascinating issues. Yeah, so give it a read and see what you think. Um, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a great film, but uh, Al Pacino did do a version of Merchant of Venice about I don't know 10, 12 years ago. You know, the older I get, the harder it is to know when things happened. Um, sometime in the past. Um, anyway, so that and. Um, that's a film worth looking at. Um, so his, his performance is very good. Okay. Pacino's a real, I mean, he, despite all the scenery he chooses in Hollywood films, he's actually a decent Shakespearean actor. Oh, good to know. My daughter is getting her um, Shakespeare play assigned this, this morning. So I'll be curious to see what play she gets to perform this spring. So do you know which plays are in the running? I don't have a clue. I just know that every, year they do a little handful and last year it was a midsummer's night's dream a midsummer night's dream so mm -hmm. she got to play bottom it was very exciting oh that's great bottom's a great role yeah um so one of the other things that we love to ask our guests barrett is um what's on your nightstand what are you reading for fun okay well um i guess i'm, I'm reading it depends on how you want to define reading um okay. because because during the pandemic, I set my bicycle up in the garage so I could do some riding um, and, and not let those muscles atrophy. So I, I'm not normally a, a podcast person, but I started listening to podcasts on, on the bicycle, which is still not answering your question. But um, I'm getting to the idea that I'm never quite sure to say when I've listened to a book if I've actually read it or not. Okay. okay. So, and this is truly... Um, 
mindless reading or listening, but I've been, I've, I've been doing PG Woodhouse. Oh. Uh, and I decided because of a recommendation I heard on a podcast from Mark Bittman, of all people, uh, a recommendation of PG Woodhouse's um, Blanding's Castle series. Of course, mm-hmm. I, you know, we all know Bertie and Jeeves. Mm-hmm. But um, so I just started something fresh, which is the one from the first one in the Blanding's Castle series. So that's on my bicycle. Uh, by the nightstand right now, I've got, um, I have a, um, speaking of things Shakespearean, it's uh, the memoir of Michael McLeamore, who played uh, Iago in Orson Welles's uh, film of, of Othello, which is the other film, by the way, which vies for the greatest Shakespeare film of all time. It's either Falstaff or Othello. Um, anyway, so Michael McLeamore's um, memoir, it's actually not a memoir, it's his, his diary called Put Money in My Purse. So mm-hmm. I've, I've, all, I've, I've been reading that. Um, and then I've also uh, been renewing my acquaintance with Gilead. So oh, yes. I kind of got, you know, different, different things going on, at, depending on my mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Excellent. Carrie, what's on your nightstand? Yeah, I too have different things going on depending on my mood. So I have recently started a a sort of a book club um, with two other colleagues from one from English and one from art uh, on um, Catherine Elgin's True Enough, which argues that truth in, in epistemological language has been too constrained by the factual and the logical um, and needs to be broadened to what she calls um, felicitous falsehoods, where we then get into scientific experiments, thought experiments, and she argues actually that literary works um, present truth in this way as very, very long and detailed thought experiments. So it's absolutely fascinating and fun to read with an artist and a, a lit professor. You always make me sound so, um, well, not smart in terms of my nightstand reading. Well, I mean, I have that, but then I also just, so I finished up the, the most recent Terry Pratchett book that I was reading mm-hmm. and started, I realized I, I had not read very much early Terry Pratchett. So yeah. I started Guards, Guards, um, okay. which is about a very drunken night watchman in, uh, in a city and a dragon. So it's just, just for fun. Excellent. And then I'm still reading that book about um, Agnes Boker's cat. Um, oh, Monster yeah. Births and Witchcraft in Tudor England. So, and are you enjoying that? Yes, it's very fascinating. Very fascinating. So depending on my mood, I've got those three. Yeah. And what about you? Well, I am reading this history about vagrants and vagabonds, which is very interesting. And we're moving into sort of the connection between vagrancy and race in the 1800s. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. And then um, I am also reading British fiction and this is Dorothy Sayers have his carcass I am enjoying Dorothy Sayers mystery novels a great deal it's a very fun read and the library has the large print versions which is really easy on the eyes as someone who does not yet wear glasses I appreciate that I don't have to strain my eyes at all and I just finished and I should just mention this um Lindy in the library had recommended a book called Swedes Hollow. It's a fiction, but it's based on historical research that a Swedish man did about an area of St. Paul 
that was next to a creek and by some railroad tracks and by the old Hams Brewery, where basically Swedish immigrants were squatting in shelters and trying to eke out a living. And it was a very um, intriguing book. And I think um, Lindy and I both were talking about how we appreciated that it was actually translated from the Swedish into English. And it's intriguing enough that Tim has picked it up and has begun reading it. So that's high praise, I think. Yes. Oh, that sounds interesting. I feel like I've maybe been to a coffee house, a Swedish coffee house and had a snickerdoodle in that area of St. Paul. And that someone told me that it used to be called Swedes Hollow or, or something like that. Vague, vague recollection of that. And Barrett, you're, you're a huge biker. I believe that there's a bicycle path through that area. Have you bicycled through that area at all? I haven't done much bicycling in that part of St. Paul. I, I, I tend more to go in, in, in a northern direction, but I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was one there. So. Yeah. I, I, I want to insert about true enough that, you know, Picasso said art is the lie that tells the truth. So. That's fantastic. Yeah. We're only, we just finished chapter one. So it may be that she ends up incorporating that. Excellent. Well, Barrett, it's been a delight. And for those of you listening, you have been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.